most people tend to do cardio in a wrong way. So they're they're kind of uh, kicking themselves out of the fat burning state and they start to burn carbs for fuel as well while they are doing cardio. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome back to the High Performance Health Podcast. I'm Angela Foster. I'm excited to have you here today. And I'm actually recording this outside on a nature walk, which is something that um, is a habit I've really strongly put in place over lockdown. And um, I very rarely missed a day over the last four months. And so every morning I come out first thing with my dogs. Absolutely beautiful. Admittedly, it's been easier to do at this time of year because the the, the weather's a been great over the last few months, um, surprisingly here in the UK, but also, um, for the most part at least, but also um, it's much, much lighter. So we're having lighter mornings and longer evenings. So that kind of makes it easier. And I do wonder whether this is something I can really keep up when we're in the depths of November, December, and it's dark and it's pouring with rain. Actually, what I'll probably do is move that to a lunchtime walk because really the benefits of going on a nature walk and getting that natural light is so important for circadian entrainment, for helping you sleep better at night. Um, so it's it's really good all round in terms of the health benefits. And that brings me to today's guest on the podcast, who is Simland, and he is an absolute expert in metabolic flexibility and in helping you understand how to help your body adapt so that it can choose what form of fuel it wants to burn on demand. So helping you to be better at burning fat, burning carbohydrates when you need to, and developing that all-round metabolic flexibility. Welcome to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Foster, and today I'm here with Simland. Sim is an author, speaker, and content creator. He talks about biohacking and health optimization for the sake of longevity and performance. And I'm really, really thrilled to have you here today, Sim, to talk to you all about metabolic flexibility and autophagy. Um, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, and i uh, also glad to talk with you. Brilliant. So, um, first of all, let's let's start with metabolic flexibility because this is a big topic area, um, particularly for people as they kind of advance through the years in terms of staying lean and healthy and enhancing longevity. Can you first briefly describe um, what metabolic flexibility is in your view? Yeah, like uh, well, my own view. Uh isn't my own sort of say like that of uh, your research of, view. Of, yeah i've described it uh, based on research and how other scientists describe it as well and uh, basically it refers to, metabolic flexibility refers to the body's ability to swap uh, between different fuel sources and uh, the human body can use uh, like a different kinds of fuel sources like um, the main usually most people burn is uh, glucose that's comes from carbohydrates or sugar uh, then there's also like body fat uh, and fatty acids and then there's also things like ketones, which are the uh, byproducts of uh, fatty acid metabolism. They get converted from uh, fat into ketones. And there's also like various things like, um, like lactic acid and uh, others. So uh, the human body has like been very adaptable and we can use uh, various kinds of fuel sources in different situations. And that has you know, enabled us to kind of survive through, throughout our history. Uh, and metabolic flexibility just... Um, 
refers to this ability to swap between them without any problems, so to say. So you, you can swap from, like, let's say, like a fasted state where you're burning a lot of fat into a fit state where you're burning carbs without uh, experiencing like these negative side effects. For example, it's very common, like when your body is in a deep state of fat burning, then your uh, ability to burn carbohydrates is going to decrease and therefore if you like introduce carbs immediately after having uh, been on a, like a low carb keto diet or ha having fasted for a long time then you may experience some uh, insulin resistance and uh, like high blood sugar because of that because your body ha is having like a hard time to uh, convert back over into burning those carbs and uh, therefore it's the sort of like a lag time and uh, this is like a somewhat of an inflexible situation, whereas a flexible uh, metabolism would be able to like really adapt uh, fast and uh, to not experience like these alterations in uh, negative side effects. And of course, like you can also apply in the other way around. So, for example, if you're uh, bonking during exercise, uh, then it may indicate that you have like you know at least some limited uh, metabolic flexibility because your body is running out of carbs and it can't really convert over into burning fat immediately whereas a flexible metabolism would make the shift uh, quite rapidly so it will burn the carbs but it'll also be able to burn fat at a higher rate and it's going to just adjust the uh, rates of fat oxidation based based upon like the exercise intensity and uh, what you're eating and what you're doing on a daily basis so this is almost then enabling the human body to kind of burn its preferred fuel on demand, depending on what its needs are at the time, which yeah. for most people, um, and I know that you've talked about this yourself quite a bit, many people actually are used to burning glucose predominantly as a fuel, which puts them at greater risk of a number of diseases, including things like type 2 diabetes. Um, I want to kind of go in with you to and explore body composition and how that facilitates this and also how metabolic flexibility in and of itself then also supports body composition. Um, but just to kind of circle back on what you were saying there, it is metabox, metabolic flexibility a state that you can get to where you can actually change food sources on demand or do you find that there is always a transition? So for example, like we see people who, if they've been eating a lot of carbohydrates and they try and transition into the keto diet, then actually they can experience things like keto flu and they struggle. And similarly, um, you were saying that, you know, people may find that they can't burn carbohydrates quite as well if they've been on a ketogenic diet for some time. Um, what, what I suppose my first question really here would be is, is there a particular diet that you, based on all of your research and experience, which is extensive, um, that you would recommend? Or do you think this comes down to personalization? Uh, well, I do think that uh, everyone's diet should be personalized and uh, it's a very you know, unique to the individual and their circumstances. Um, but at the same time, there are also some like fundamentals that uh, lay the foundation to metabolic flexibility. So for example, if you're only eating like a high carb diet, you're never doing any forms of intermittent fasting, you're never restricting your carbs, then your ability to burn ketones and fat is uh, somewhat uh, reduced or it's, it's much less so uh, compared to someone who is eating like a low carb diet or someone who is doing intermittent fasting. So, and that, that, that's why they also experience this keto flu that they have to go through this uh, transition period that uh, they quit the carbs and then they're body is having a like hard time uh, adapting to the ketones so um, that's why you have to kind of at least 
lay the foundation with some form of a, uh, like a keto adapted state. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be on a keto diet all the time. It just means that you need to increase the body's ability to tap into you know, keto, tap into like its own fat stores, as well as produce ketones and utilize them for energy. So there's a difference between like being in ketosis and being keto adapted. Being keto adapted uh, means that your body has uh, at least experienced some aspects of ketosis every once in a while, and is also able to, uh, you know, use the uh, ketones efficiently. Whereas being in ketosis just means that you're producing ketones and you are in the state of uh, nutritional or fasting ketosis. So they're not uh, always the same. So uh, the goal should be being keto adapted instead of being in ketosis. So you don't need to be in ketosis all the time to uh, stay keto adapted, but you do have to at least, uh, you know, experience some aspects of ketosis every once in a while to become keto adapted. So you need to do like at least maybe, you know, some form of carbohydrate restriction or carbohydrate uh, cycling, uh, as well as uh, maybe some form of time restricted eating and that sort of thing, uh, just because uh, it will kind of facilitate the the adaptation process. So if you if you never if you never have like the reference experience for burning ketones and fat, then um, the keto adaptation process will not set in either. So you're always going to stay in the high carb state. So. Ideally, I would say that, or if I gave you like an answer, then I would say like some form of a cyclical keto diet is uh, probably the best one for doing uh, this, you know, achieving this metabolic flexibility because you uh, you embrace uh, both uh, fuel sources. Like you you uh, you do uh, stay mindful of a carbohydrate intake, but you're all, you're not like uh, restricting them completely either. So you basically eat you 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 can basically achieve this keto adaptation by kind of timing your carbohydrates around your exercise or so to say, or adjusting them based upon your activity level. Because like the more physically active you are, then the more carbs your body will burn and the more your, the more carbs you can get away with as well. So uh, yeah, like if you're a sedentary person, then you can you, you need to eat less carbs to, to become keto adapted. But uh, if you're uh, physically, af- physically active and you have like more muscle mass and you're insulin sensitive, then you can get away with more carbs and you don't need to be that restrictive. Yeah, for sure. So where you're um, talking there in terms of cyclical um, keto, is that, would that be more on a daily basis or intraday basis rather than say doing longer periods of a ketogenic diet and then sort of cycling in and out? You mentioned there, for example, with maybe cycling the carbs in and around exercise. So I know, for example, like quite often what I'll find works really well for me is that I will, and this helps to keep my mental function really high and my performance during the day um, high, is to kind of stay very low carb or pretty much ketogenic during the day and then have some carbohydrates in the evening after working out um, to sort of refuel. Um, Can you describe for people what you would mean by that cyclical ketogenic diet? Yeah, well... There's a uh, different ways you can do the cyclical keto diet, uh, but yeah, the main premise is that you kind of cycle between eating somewhat higher carb and lower low carb. So uh, usually, most people do the cyclical keto diet in a way that they eat keto for let's say the entire week, and then they have like a maybe few days of eating more carbs. That's more like a weekly cycle, and uh, then there's some other people who do it on. You can also do it on a daily basis that you do like eat low carb the first period of the day and the evening is for carbohydrates sort of so you get the mental clarity and uh, the stable energy 
from uh, the ketones during the daytime, and you kind of yeah, you after the exercise you refill, so to say, and it's not going to inhibit the uh, ketosis that much because you're 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 still like burning through a lot of the carbs, and the carbs are also been stored as like muscle glycogen. So yeah, there's different ways of going about it, but you have to find out like what's the what's the kind of a goal and uh, what's the uh, what, what kind of suits for you as well and what, what you find more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Sure. In terms of your um, own metabolic demands and also presumably genetics to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. And you talk there as well about maintaining muscle mass. I know that you're in, um, I've seen your, your posts and things and you're in incredibly good shape and having a decent level of muscle mass makes a massive difference to this, as you've said. Um, and it's something that, you know, we know from the age of 30 without real attention to it starts to decline over a number of years. Um, what would you say in terms of exercise uh, and strength training, have you found the best form to to basically stimulate that muscle growth and then maintain it? Have you used things like super slow weight training, or what 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 are the kind of mechanisms that you've used? Uh, well, I myself have been doing uh, primarily like uh, regular uh, like resistance training with weights and uh, calisthenics. So. Uh, the main kind of trigger for um, muscle growth is uh, like mechano overload. So there needs to be something, the muscles need to be stimulated near their near maximum effort. And the research shows that it tends to be at least like 70 to 80% of your one repetition, one repetition maximum where the muscles are stimulated adequately. Um, but uh, it also, there's also some training methodologies where you can achieve that with uh, lighter loads, for example, like blood flow restriction training, where you use like these bands around your arms and limbs that kind of restrict some of the blood flow into the extremities. And that actually kind of trick your, tricks your body into t- thinking that it's lifting heavier weights because the blood flow is somewhat uh, you know, constricted. And uh, therefore, it kinda, you can achieve these same stimulus for muscle growth even with the intensities like 20 to 30%. So uh, yeah, the, you know, the, but the, the key principle is still the same, that the mu- muscle is experiencing this uh, higher, higher amounts of tension and it's um, you know, sti- stimulated in a way that um, requires it to adapt and get stronger. Because uh, if you're like, always lifting the same weights uh, or the same amount of weight and you're not getting stronger, at least in some shape or form, then the, the body isn't going to respond by building more muscle either. So it only responds if there's like a necessity and uh, it needs to grow muscle. And have you found that there is a perfect number of resistance-based workouts each week that people should be doing? Um, well, the the um, the minimum effective dose is probably you can even do it. Yeah, like once a week if you do um, if you do uh, kind of compensate for the lack of frequency by doing like a very intense workout. Uh, but you know, optimally, I would say that two to three times is, is probably uh, the kind of bare minimum that uh, you, you would want to do. And uh, even up the upper limit, I would say you can even do like five times a week, but then you have to be more mindful of like recovery and not uh, doing like very intense workouts back to back. So you do still need some uh, time for recovery and do not you know constantly break down the muscle tissue. So you need to rest. And I would say ideally, yeah, like somewhere between like three times a week is probably 
the kind of good balance and the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, sure. And what about cardiovascular work? Um, I know that you don't see the same kind of benefits after the workout in terms of um, enhancing sort of metabolic function. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of cardio and how much, if we're looking really at just optimizing metabolic flexibility and body composition, what are your thoughts on the volume of cardio while still supporting, you know, good cardiac function? Yeah, well, cardio is uh, great for promoting uh, keto adaptation and um, becoming more metabolically flexible because uh, when you are doing, let's say, low-intensity steady-state cardio, then your body is already burning uh, primarily fats uh, for fuel. So uh, that's that can be great for like going through some of the adaptation process or speeding it up to a certain extent. Uh, but the problem is that most people tend to do cardio in a wrong way. So they're, they're kind of... Uh, kicking themselves out of the fat burning state and they start to burn carbs for fuel as well while they are doing cardio because they kind of scale up the intensity. So they start to pant and they, um, they kind of, um, do it almost like in a way that is uh, semi high intensity exercise. <laughs> so th that's yeah. not, that's, that shouldn't be like the goal of cardio. The goal of cardio should be that it's actually like, you know, steady state and, uh, somewhat easy, easy going because uh, that's where you're burning fat and uh, that's where you're also getting like some of the cardiovascular benefits because if you do it like chronically in this very stressed out state then that can yeah that can put much, too much stress on the body and uh, it definitely doesn't like it it definitely can make you fitter but it's not i think it's not that sustainable so my my idea of that is that if you are lifting you know if you're doing resistance training or weights then you should focus more on just the intensity and trying to get stronger uh, and not do it like in a you know like a circuit base you shouldn't do weights with uh like high amounts of reps unless that's your goal of course but uh, that's just going to promote like endurance and cardio is going to work and and the same applies to cardio you shouldn't do cardio in a way that resembles like resistance training or high intensity training the cardio should be like low intensity and uh like a longer lasting steady state so when you say lo longer lasting do you mean kind of 45 minutes an hour plus uh, yeah, yeah, it depends on the goal. Uh, so I, I personally do, I do cardio maybe for for an hour, once or twice a week, and I think that's perfectly like okay. And I, you can do it like every other day as well, etc. If if you want to have like more cardiovascular or like the more endurance based part or something, but generally once or twice a week is uh, already good enough. And what would you be working in in terms of when you're doing that once, twice a week for an hour? You were saying steady state all the time. What kind of heart rate zone would you be working within um, to make sure that you're staying within that fat burning um, state? Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I gauge it by my like uh, breathing. So if I'm able to maintain uh, nasal breathing, then it kind of means that I'll be I'll, I'm staying in the fat burning state, and uh, once I start, you know, breathing through the mouth, and if I can, you know, hold a conversation, uh, then then I'm burning uh, glycogen, and uh, therefore I'll, you know, uh, because as you get more fitter, as you become more fat adapted, then the thresholds where you can burn fat also increases, mm -hmm. so you'll be able to burn fat even at a higher intensity, uh, just because uh, you don't run into an energy crisis, and uh, yeah, like the best best uh, way to look at it is your like breathing so that you should be able to still breathe somewhat normally and almost like have a conversation with someone else and do it like through the, through the uh, nose. And so when you talk about nasal breathing now, you mean actually breathing in and out through the nose, presumably. 
both yeah. ways. Yeah. 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 Which was interesting because I was, I was interviewing Patrick McEwen uh, yesterday or the day before, and we were talking about nasal breathing and trying to actually do that much more when you're out walking, for example, and this sort of low, um, lower level car endurance cardio is actually a good way to practice that nasal breathing um, and facilitates that better oxygen delivery to the tissues. And in terms of that cardiovascular work, presumably then to facilitate that fat burning even further, you would advise doing that in a fasted state. Um, yeah, the overall, there's not going to be like a significant difference if you work out fasted or fed, um, as long, as long as this, the calories for the day are still the same, but okay. there is, you know, some increased fat burning, uh, if you do, uh, work out in a state of ketosis, whether it be while fasting or after having eaten like a low carb meal. Uh, so generally there is not much significant difference. But uh, yeah, the you know um, the fat, you know because fat oxidation doesn't necessarily mean fat loss. So uh, you can you can burn a lot of fat during your daytime and still not lose weight if you're overeating calories at night, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the the calories are still important. And uh, but you know the 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 working out in a fasted state would let's say facilitate more fat burning, uh, be just because the fuel partitioning effect. So you just have to make sure that you still also practice a calorie deficit. And so what have you found in terms of people who find it that they can't, it's quite stubborn in terms of um, fat loss. What have you found are the biggest inhibitors? Um, have you found that often it is that excess calorie um, demand or um, what, are, what are the main things that you would say people should look for if they're feeling like maybe they've lost some weight initially and now there's a bit of kind of stubborn hold? Uh, yeah, well, the thing is that... Uh, there's inevitably going to be uh, some um, reduction in your metabolic rate as you lose weight, because mm. uh, if you become become more lightweight, you lose your body weight, then your body will burn fewer calories as well. So there needs to be like a natural decrease in some of the calories as you get leaner and as you get lighter. Uh, so there's, you know, there's that, uh, but there's also things that chronic calorie restriction does also suppress the metabolic rate to a certain extent. So uh, that's why, I believe like a, some form of a cyclical calorie restriction is better. Uh, so you need, would want to have at least like some, some days where you eat uh, a bit more calories as to keep like the metabolic rate elevated and uh, to not go into like this, uh, like, like a slower metabolism pheno phenomenon. And uh, yeah, generally you can, you can do it like every, every week you can have like some sort of like a higher calorie day a little bit, which doesn't, which of course doesn't mean that you should, you know, like overeat and binge and that sort of thing, because that can, that can completely like jeopardize the previous day's work. So you still have to, you have to look at the overall calorie intake over the course of weeks and months, as opposed to just like the daily calorie intake, because uh, the weight loss and fat loss happens over the course of weeks and months as well, not, not on a daily basis. Sure. Uh, but, but also like some other potential issues uh, that affect your uh, like metabolic flexibility are, uh, you know, sleep deprivation can be a problem. Sleep deprivation makes your body hold onto fat and uh, makes you burn more muscle. Uh, then there's also stress in general, chronic stress does the same. And uh, even, uh, even like a, continuously low carb diet, like a, you're staying on keto for too long, that can also cause some metabolic adaptation. 
And the way you overcome that is also like just maybe eating some more carbs on some other days because uh, like the thyroid, the thyroid gland is very regulated by insulin and uh, carbohydrates. So they help to the production of uh, thyroid hormones. So they can raise, raise your energy expenditure and they can even raise uh, leptin, which is like the satiety hormone and uh, also regulates energy expenditure. So uh, yeah, like if you're constantly in a state of ketosis, that then that can cause some plateaus. And the way you can overcome that is having like some refeeds every once in a while, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe kicking yourself out of ketosis deliberately and eating some carbs. Mm-hmm. And what have you found for people that have a kind of lower thyroid function um, and they've been following a keto diet? Have you found that actually it's better to sort of cycle in and out with um, carbohydrates on a sort of nightly or, or daily basis at some point or whether that's better to do that kind of just on, on a few days a week? Um, well, I, yeah, it depends on the person, uh, but generally generally uh you you can you can if you have like a somewhat of a lower metabolic rate then eating a more higher protein diet is uh better than uh let's say a, a strict keto diet because uh protein has like a very high thermic effect of food like mm-hmm. nearly double that of carbs and fat so your body will burn more calories for just digesting the protein and it's also better for like uh, body composition so i would i would uh, definitely like eat a diet that is uh, higher in protein and uh, yeah not necessarily let's say not necessarily this uh, strict keto macros where you're very low uh, carbs and also like very low in protein mm-hmm. and how do you combine that in terms of like still um keeping within um stimulating cellular autophagy and making sure there's adequate levels of that without like over consuming protein for example and and inhibiting that what's the best way is that by through having sufficient eating like restricted eating windows to make sure that you're getting sufficient autophagy yeah well protein um, does inhibit autophagy mm-hmm. but uh so does like carbs and insulin. So protein isn't like the biggest inhibitor of autophagy. And uh, yeah, the eating frequency is probably the biggest factor to this. So you can still experience high amounts of autophagy on a daily basis if you do some form of time receive eating and you're not eating uh, all the time. So yeah, you can, you can effectively do, let's say, uh, some form of fasting where you eat like uh, two meals a day or or uh, or eat within eight hours or so and you can still get some increased basal autophagy even if you are eating like higher amounts of protein sure and what have you found with um for women in particular because i've been sort of looking at this a bit more recently um and i'm thinking here more women that are pre-menopausal so they're still menstruating in terms of the impact on hormones um have you found that for women actually keeping that fasting window a bit shorter than men is preferable for hormone regulation what are your thoughts on that uh yeah like as a general rule of thumb, I would say that, yeah, women, they could, uh, let's say, fast a few hours less. Like, um, instead of fasting for 16 hours, they may fast for like 14 hours or so. And uh, generally, it's also affected like magnesium and other electrolytes. So if you are fasting all the time or you're eating uh, low-carb keto, then you may lose some of your electrolytes um, that help to uh, prevent the symptoms of PMS, for example. And uh, yeah, like supplementing some magnesium is uh, is pretty effective for that, as well as the, because of the general, let's say, the, the insulin resistance itself will make things worse. And 
if if let's say if, if fasting or keto helps you to fix your insulin resistance then um, it's uh, still somewhat better <laughs> so then uh, than not having fixed that in the first place i think mm -hmm. but presumably like for women who for example are very lean or very athletic then shorter fasting windows are preferable yeah 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 it's um yeah like the, the leaner you are then um the the less you need to fast, so, to say. so you're going to gain the benefits faster because your body doesn't have to burn through uh, that much extra, extra energy and you're going to get into like the beneficial zone uh, somewhat faster. And also, also like if you are very physically active, then the same applies that you can't fast uh, you know, that long. If you have like higher energy demands, you, you kind of need to nourish yourself because if you're like constantly, constantly fasting all the time or fasting too much or some other forms of energy stress on your system, then uh, that's going to eventually just uh, lower thyroid functioning and uh, there your metabolism will also kind of take a nosedive eventually. Yeah, for sure. And um, what about in terms of supplementation that like you mentioned magnesium there? Um, are there other things that you recommend supplementing with in terms of helping um, with both metabolic flexibility and autophagy? Um, well, um, like I don't know if you can call it a supplement, but uh, coffee is uh, great <laughs> for uh, increasing uh, like uh, mitochondrial function as well as uh, fat oxidation, and it does boost autophagy as well. So these different kinds of uh, polyphenols from plants, like uh, coffee, uh, green tea, different kinds of teas, uh, turmeric, ginger, they have like this uh, uh, autophagic effect as well as like this adaptogenic effect. So they help the body to deal with stress better and uh, they also improve the mitochondrial function so those are somewhat like real food supplements that, that i myself you know consume and then there's also uh, like um, creatine is a very cheap uh, supplement but it's uh, quite essential for energy production and even things like uh, brain function and uh, overall uh, longevity so creatine is uh, just this white powder and it helps the body to kind of use uh, high intensity uh, or like it, it helps to improve uh, high intensity exercise as well as just that uh, general uh, muscle growth and uh, muscle performance and with creatine do you um take that do you split that dose um over the day presumably you don't do a loading phase and you just take like a standard daily dose but do you have that twice a day or how do you recommend taking creatine yeah, you, you don't need to do like some loading uh, phase. Uh, that was like you, the old bodybuilders used to do that. But uh, if you're just taking creatine for you know regular uh, purposes, then uh, you can yeah just take three to five grams uh, every day. And uh, I don't think that you need to spread it out. Um, yeah, I, maybe optimally you could take like two and a half grams in the morning and two and a half grams in the evening. But uh, I think it doesn't really matter that much. Mm hmm Okay. So creatine and obviously we've talked about caffeine. Um, and um, is there anything else that you take on a daily basis? Uh, I also take um, uh, trimethylglycine, which is uh, a pretty good uh, supplement for methylation and uh, supports methylation, which is involved with basically like every other you know, almost every other f function in the body, like digestion and uh, energy production and yeah, blood sugar management. So yeah, trimethylglycine helps. It's kind of, it's a methyl donor, it supports methylation, but some research also shows that it improves like body composition and uh, fat loss. So it's generally 
it's it's a it's great to have like some additional methyl donors, especially if you're eating like a higher protein diet, because then it can it can uh, offset the the uh, imbalance between methionine and uh, and uh, like trimethylglycine or glycine. Um, okay, and you mentioned there, we were talking a little bit, um, you touched on mitochondrial health and supporting that. And I just want to kind of revert back a little bit to exercise because so far when we talked about, we talked about resistance training and making sure that actually you're doing it to enhance muscle mass and you're not kind of incorporating it as some circuit style training, which would give different results. And then coupling that with a couple of times a week, some longer um, endurance-based cardio sessions that are at a much um, lower rate and output. What are your thoughts in terms of using high intensity exercise to enhance mitochondrial health and doing things like shorter sprints, um, for example, is that something you incorporate? Um, yeah, high intensity cardio is great. Um, to, like it, it does mimic some of the uh, cardiovascular effects of uh, regular cardio, um, but, it, but it's also somewhat more stressful. So it depends on, yeah, like how much overall like training load you have and uh, like how much time you have, for example. So you, you can effectively compress some of the, let's say, like you, you can mimic like a long cardio session uh, with a, like a very short high intensity uh, cardio session uh, to a certain extent. Uh, uh, but it's, it, it does like mimic some aspects of resistance training as well. So you can, you can yeah, use it. Uh, I tend to use it as well, maybe uh, like once a week or so, but I wouldn't like, uh, I wouldn't, because you have to be mindful that uh, the high intensity cardio, uh, it's not gonna um, like interfere with some of the other adaptations that you may pursue. Like it, it may just put more stress on uh, the muscle growth process or something, and it can therefore like reduce your performance in the other uh, exercises that you do. So it's, it, it can be great, it can be useful, but uh, it's not something that you should uh, overdo. and. Uh, because a lot of the time people can become addicted to it as well mm. <laughs> because of like the adrenaline and the high energy that they feel, they feel great while doing it. And then, then they start pursuing this uh, high, so to say that they start doing it all the time. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've definitely fallen um, foul of that. I think uh, not so long ago actually as well. Cause it's, it, I mean, the thing with high intensity work is it's a great way if you're feeling, um, if you're feeling slightly less motivated or you've had, even it was sometimes, you know, when you've had poor sleep or actually recently I had a kind of iron deficiency um, and I was relying on things like high intensity to get the endorphins going to try and clear that sort of fog. Um, mm. And, and I, I, I do say to people, you know, if you're, if you're having to rely on high intensity or you're having to go really hard and you can't really get any work done until you've done a HIIT workout or a kind of half marathon, then actually you probably need to look a bit deeper at what's going on. And as you say, it does, um, stimulate cortisol somewhat as well, which I think can inhibit people's fat loss goals in any event um, mm. if they're too stressed. What are the, um, sorry, were you going to add something there? Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, yeah, if you are like constantly, um, you know, constantly running on this adrenaline, then your body will kind of uh, start producing less cortisol by default as well because of like the adrenals become somewhat fatigued so yeah if you feel tired especially in the morning then it does indicate that your body doesn't produce enough of its uh, natural cortisol because of like this uh, fatigue and you're going to run themselves out so generally it's better to kind of uh, take a, maybe like a somewhat of a break as to allow this uh, to recover and uh, you know get back to a baseline 
yeah, definitely. That's definitely something I've been doing. And I could see that actually when I did a Dutch test because it was showing up with um, kind of higher salivary cortisol in the morning, but then on the metabolized cortisol, it was pretty low. And, and even the salivary was really non-existent as the day went on. Um, what are your thoughts then just in the broader sense? We've talked a little bit on, we've obviously talked a lot about body composition there and in terms of using fasting to enhance autophagy. What are some other um, anti-aging or longevity uh, kind of hacks that we can talk about that people can, can use? Um, well, I think um, sleep itself is uh, one of the most important things for longevity as well as overall health. So, uh, you, you can like have a bad diet, you can have no exercise, but you can't really have uh, bad sleep for too long because a sleep deprivation is, uh, increases the risk of many diseases like you know, cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. uh, Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity, and yeah, it's, uh, it's not sustainable. Uh, so yeah, I, th I think uh, focusing on the quality for sleep is uh, quite important. And uh, generally, generally that's gonna mean that you should uh, you should avoid like this, you should sleep in a very stress-free environment. So if you are like very stimulated in the evening, whether that be because of, I don't know, alcohol, uh, caffeine, uh, social media or exercise or eating, then that's going to uh, reduce the quality of sleep. Um, and uh, likewise, you know, sunlight exposure, daylight exposure during the daytime is also important for, um, you know, c controlling the circadian rhythms and uh, the production of many of these sleep hormones that uh, help you to sleep better. So yeah, generally I would say sleeping, you know, the sleep length is important, but the sleep quality itself is uh, actually more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. And do you, you track that with an aura ring? Do you, do you, do you monitor your sleep quality each night? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, have the aura uh, ring. And um, just in relation to that, actually, because then I know, um, you know, with that, you can look at heart rate variability as well. That's something I just want to touch on, because I think um, that seems to be literally very variable. Some people seem to have naturally lower heart rate variability. And also, I think we see... Um, the, some of the evidence I've read is that actually men have higher heart rate variability. And I think women's can be affected as well, um, even kind of intra month um, by their, their menstrual cycle. What are your thoughts in terms of, for someone who wants to start tracking it, where should they start in terms of heart rate variability and what should they be looking for to see how well recovered they are? Yeah, I think um, the heart rate variability is yeah, very subjective and, uh, the like the measuring devices or the O-ring, they can they can give us some let's say not uh, that objective data. I think they can be somewhat misleading because yeah, for example, um, my own heart rate variability on my O-ring is like oh, I'm always above 100. <laughs> like I'm uh, like 110, 180 is my max or something. So it's a very it's it's much higher than someone else. Like uh, other people tend to say that they have only like they never get above 100, they're always around like 40 or 30, something around that. So I think it's just that like the ring establishes some sort of like a baseline and uh, you shouldn't really compare your own uh, HRV scores with someone else. You should always compare it to your baseline. So where your, uh, like, where your balance is at and see like the fluctuations from that because that's going to be more um, you know, relevant to your situation. So yeah, the numbers themselves, they only matter um, you know, uh, 
in relation to your own baseline. So where, you're, where, where, you, where you first like measure it for a few days or a few weeks, and then you see like where your baseline is at, and then you start to see like, okay, if my HRV is particularly lower, then it means that I'm uh, somewhat under-recovered. And if it's higher, then it shows that improvements in your like uh, health and, and you're also like somewhat more recovered. So I would always look at only just like the baseline from that. And generally like things that uh, reduce HRV are stress in general, uh, not sleeping enough, uh, poor diet, uh, overtraining, uh, worrying, even anxiety, and everything you know, everything stress related is going to um, reduce HRV. And things that increase HRV are again like you know the recovery strategies, sleeping, uh, eating proper properly, and even things like sauna or fasting, they can also uh, promote this kind of a recovery. Yeah, which are kind of mild forms of stress actually aren't they in terms of the a form of hormesis in terms of fasting and sauna things like that do you also advocate like as part of your i just want to touch a little bit on your own daily routine do you do you um do regular kind of cold showering and sauna um what does your daily routine look like yeah i do uh the I've, yeah i do take a sauna basically almost every day uh, at least at least like three to four times a week and uh, yeah it's uh, it's great it's great for recovery as well as uh, you know b- boosting autophagy and other just uh, health improvements so for example some studies show from finland that uh, taking a sauna at least four times a week reduces uh, cardiovascular risk by up to 60 percent and all cause mortality by 40 percent uh, compared to doing it only once a week so uh, the, taking a sauna is great just for the heart health and cardiovascular health but overall overall longevity as well so i do uh, like it but i also like the cold um i don't do the cold every day but uh, i also try to take like an ice bath or a cold shower maybe every other day also so it has like similar benefits primarily like uh anti-inflammatory effects and uh, reduces like muscle soreness for example so if you if i feel that i haven't recovered from a workout or if i feel like sore because of maybe poor sleep or something then uh, like a cold bath or ice bath is uh, almost 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 always uh, fixes that yeah brilliant i just got my sauna recently actually you can probably see it behind me and i'm absolutely uh, loving it um the last thing I want to touch on, because I know that your output in terms of work is huge, and I think the listeners will really um, get a lot from this. You've written multiple books um, of, of, of a big, decent size, um, hugely well-researched. And I just wonder, like, how do you manage such output? I know you're pretty young as well. Um, you've achieved so much already. How do you kind of maximize your own productivity and flow state? Um, well, I th- one of my like biggest uh, productivity secrets is just uh, having a solid like daily routine, and uh, yeah, not having any distractions during daytime. So I'll just uh, I have like a rule or a habit that I created myself that uh, I'm going to you know start working. Uh, in the morning and I'll work for like a set amount of hours and I'm not going to have like any distractions during that time. So I won't check on social media and uh, I won't have like some other scheduled responsibilities for that time. That time is only for uh, just doing the work and uh, focusing on whatever that I may be working on. So I think, yeah, just the consistency aspect is uh, the most important part. So um, I do it every day. <laughs> so there's no, there's no like, um, 
interruptions and there's no distractions for that. Then. And yeah, it's just doing it uh, day by day with, um, with consistency. So is this kind of like a four-hour block of work, for example, that you set aside and just get into deep work? Yeah, yeah usually it is uh, about four hours, yeah. And what about during that? Do you find that, um, do you use anything like the Pomodoro technique, for example? Do you take breaks? Do you get up during that period? How do you maintain that laser focus or are there any, anything supplementary wise that you use to enhance that um, at all? Uh, I don't use like any Pomodoro, Pomodoro technique or I don't use like a stopwatch or anything. So I'll just, I do take breaks. Like I'll go outside a little bit uh, or I'll go drink some water or something. But uh, those breaks happen more like spontaneously, or uh, if I feel like I didn't, uh, that I need to take a break. But I'm not going to like set a timer where I will break my workflow because I think that's gonna like just uh, disrupt the flow. So mm -hmm. I'll just take the break uh, as they go or as spontaneously as I as I need to. Uh, but I, I don't have like any other like any techniques or any other supplements that I use. I used to meditate in the morning. But I haven't done that, uh, you know, in a, in a, you know, like a, at least a year. Uh, but and I haven't noticed any like difference either. So yeah, I don't use. I, I think by now it's just become very automatic almost. So um, I I do it. Uh, I don't need to have like any tricks up my sleeve to motivate myself <laughs> or to put myself into the flow. It's just gonna happen so automatically. Because you're in that routine, so you don't use any nootropics at all. Uh, no, no. No. maybe like only caffeine if that counts okay um okay and what inspired you we didn't we didn't really touch on your on your story here what inspired you to achieve this kind of optimal state of health and and longevity at such a, a young age well it was a uh, primarily just um yeah wanting to improve my performance as well as uh yeah just uh become healthier and uh, yeah, get more things done. So I, I, was, I don't have like any history of um, disease or health problems. I just uh, yeah, did it uh, out of my own selfish desire <laughs> to uh, improve my own uh, performance and uh, health. Brilliant. So it's performance-based uh, motivation. And um, what about your childhood though? Was that pretty natural in terms of growing up and the kind of food that you ate? What was that like? Uh, yeah, yeah, like I live um, on like a island in the Baltic Sea. So I've been living in the countryside all my life. And uh, yeah, it's, nature has been pretty you know, close to me all the time. And uh, yeah, I've been eating clean food and I haven't been exposed to, let's say, uh, a lot of like these other distractions or something else. So yeah, I've been very, let's say, yeah, coming from a very natural background. Mm. You spend quite a bit of time in nature, presumably, as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I live in the countryside, so I take, like, nature walks every day. And, uh, yeah, like, we've been growing our food, like, for a long time. And, uh, yeah, I have, you know, many relatives in the past who have visited were also living in the countryside. Sounds amazing. Um, well, thank you so much, Sim. Where, where can people find you? Can you share your books um, and your website? And I know you have a big following on YouTube and Instagram as well. Where can people find you? Yeah, um, well, my website is seamlund.com and I'm uh, seamlund on all the social media apps, uh, Instagram and YouTube. Brilliant. And people can buy your book on Amazon, presumably? 
Yes, yes. Uh, it's a metabolic autophagy. Yeah. I will link to all of that in the show notes. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing all of those valuable nuggets. There's, there's so much in that episode there in terms of enhancing longevity and performance. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good talking. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.